Even if you feel perfectly normal, you can have poor gut health, which is going to affect how long you live, how many chronic diseases you get, whether you get allergies, whether your immune system is going to fight off COVID, and your mood, your sleep, all things we hadn't even thought were related. We have to think much more widely when we talk about gut health. Hi, my name is Rongan Chatterjee. Welcome to Feel Better, Live More. Hey guys, how you doing? This episode is officially the final episode of the current series of my podcast. Now, if you're a long-time listener of my show, you will know that every summer we stop the podcast for about six weeks or so. Now, there are many reasons for this, but the main one is really because the summer is a time of year where as a family, we try as much as possible to prioritize undistracted time together. Now, my wife is the producer of this podcast, and so clearly very involved, like me, with the weekly production of each show. And so for us as a family, it's really important to have some time each year when we stop. And for us, because we have two young children who are on long school holidays, the summer is the perfect time. Now, I'm well aware that many of you really look forward to each week's episode and that this podcast has earned a place in your weekly schedule and I honestly am truly, truly grateful for that. Please don't forget that there are close to 300 episodes in the back catalogue. Most of them are just as relevant today as they were when they were first released. So perhaps this summer you can take this break as an excuse to delve into the back catalogue and listen to some episodes you may have missed or perhaps revisit some of your favourites. And I think honestly, many of them are well worth a second listen. If I ever go back and listen to some of the older conversations, I will often hear different things and I'll find that the ideas land in a different way because, of course, we hear ideas differently depending on what else is going on in our lives. Now, my plan is to relaunch the next season at the start of September. As per usual, it will be the Wednesday long-form conversations and the shorter 10-minute bite-sized episodes every Friday. Now, before we get into today's show, I have a quick announcement. This podcast is looking to recruit over the summer. We need some help on the production side. So we are looking for a sound engineer and a sound editor. Someone ideally who likes the content of this show, who is on board with my mission, but is also skilled in audio engineering and editing and is committed to high quality sound and production. If that is you, please send an email to info at drchastity.com with sound engineer in the subject line. Alternatively, if you know someone who may be interested, please do let them know. Now, I always try and end the season on a really good episode, and I think today's show is one that you are going to love. I'm welcoming back Professor Tim Spector, who is my first ever guest on this show. And today, he returns for his third appearance on the podcast, for a conversation that is jam-packed with actionable information that you can be thinking about over the coming months. Now, Tim is a professor of genetic epidemiology. He's head of the Department of Twin Research at King's College London. He's a world leader when it comes to the gut microbiome. He's director of the British Gut Project, whose research has transformed much of what we know about food and health. And he's also the author of two excellent books, The Diet Myth and Spoonfed, why everything you know about food is wrong. 
If you're already familiar with Tim's work, this conversation will bring you bang up to date with all of his most recent findings and practical advice. But if you're new to the subjects of gut health, please don't worry as we provide you with all you need to know to get you up to speed. And we start off discussing why gut microbes are such a hot topic these days and where we are currently up to in our understanding of the science. Tim explains that unlike our genes, our gut microbiome is actually something that we can influence, which will improve not just our digestion, but many different aspects of our health, including our moods. Now, Tim reveals the gut-friendly properties of plant fiber, polyphenols, and fermented foods. And because diversity in our food intake is so important, Tim shares some of his own food hacks for taking in 30 different plant foods a week, a number that Tim genuinely believes is achievable for all of us. Now, I'm well aware that when we talk about gut health and increasing our intake of certain plant foods like vegetables, it's important to recognize that some people actually struggle to tolerate this for a variety of different reasons. In our conversation, we both put forward our views as to why this may be the case. We also talk about the obesity crisis, ultra-processed foods, how we should be focusing on food quality rather than calories, and why the new mandatory calorie labels are likely to be unhelpful for most people. We also talk about personalized nutrition and discuss the revolutionary PREDICT studies carried out for his Zoe Nutritional Science Company, which has found that people can have dramatically different biological responses to the same foods. And these results have led him to develop a personalized nutrition testing kit and app that you can now try as well. We also talk about the benefits of time-restricted eating for gut health. Tim dispels the myth that breakfast is the most important meal of the day for everyone. We talk about the pros and cons of health trackers. And Tim reveals the gut parasite that one in four of us have, which rather than making us ill, can actually have huge benefits for our health. This really is a fascinating conversation, full of practical and actionable information I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Tim. I hope you enjoyed listening. Before we get started, just a quick shout out to Vivo Barefoot. Now, I've been wearing and recommending Vivo Barefoot shoes for almost a decade now, well before they started supporting my podcast. And they really have had a huge impact on my own life, as well as that of my family, many of my friends, and a lot of my patients. But today, I want to share with you why I think they are a really great choice for our kids, as well as for adults. Now, the shoes that Vivo make for kids are thin-soled, so their feet can feel, grip and flex, and they're wide, so feet and toes have the space to grow strong and move, with a full range of motion to develop balance and agility. Now, you may well have heard me say on previous shows that Vivo kids' shoes are the only shoes that I will get for my children, and I really hope that in the future, more and more children are wearing minimalist shoes like Vivo's. Now, if you're interested in giving these shoes a go for your own children, the Vivo Kids school range is now back in stock for the new school year. Now, I know from personal experience that they sell out really, really quickly. So if you are keen to give them a go, I really would encourage you to go online as soon as you can. If you've never tried them before, it's completely risk-free to do so because Vivo Barefoot offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy or your kids are not happy, all you have to do is send them back for a full refund. 
Now, Vivo Barefoots are giving 20% off to all of my podcast listeners. Terms and conditions apply, but please note that 20% off is for the entire children's range and the entire adults range. All you need to do is go to vivobarefoot.com and type in the discount code LM20 at checkout. That's L for live, M for more, LM20 at checkout. It's super easy to do so, or you just go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash live more. And now, my conversation with Professor Tim Spector. I think a lot of people hear information about food and gut health and inflammation and the immune system, and often they get confused. So you are renowned as a global expert on these topics. And so I thought maybe we could start with the question, why is gut health so important? Because it's a crucial organ in our bodies, and it is one of the few things that we can really control. So there's a huge range of gut health across the population. We know that we've lost half of our gut microbes compared to perhaps even 50 or 100 years ago. And that's affecting us in many ways. And yet, it's not like genetics that you can't change. It's something that all of us can improve. And all of us needs to understand more about gut health um, so that we can improve many things in our life very simply just by altering our food choices. So it's, it's becoming apparent that it's uh, something that the public can change. You don't need doctors, you don't need specialists to do it. It's all within our power to really nurture and improve our, our, our gut microbes, which in turn are key for our gut health. So it influences you know, all, everything to do with our body, our mood, our brain, and uh, our metabolism, our weight, etc. Yeah, a lot of people think about gut health and digestion. And they think, yeah, the gut, if I can get my gut functioning better, my gut's going to feel better. But as you say there, it's not just about your gut, is it? It's about many different things in the body. Yeah, it's not. I mean, as you said, I think in the past, people have said gut health, oh, that just means, you know, to avoid heartburn or yeah. bloating or constipation or whatever it is. And now we know it's nothing like that. Even if you feel perfectly normal, you can have poor gut health, which is going to affect how long you live, uh, how many chronic diseases you get, whether you get allergies, whether your immune system is going to fight off COVID, uh, all kinds of things, uh, your mood the next day, your sleep, all things we hadn't even thought were related. So we have to think much more widely when we talk about gut health. I think it's nearly a sort of, uh, it's like talking about holistic, holistic view of your body yeah. uh, that comes back to the, you know, the ancient Indian teachings that says it all comes from there, which if you said it that way, sounds a bit pseudoscience. But if you just, instead of that, you call it the gut microbiome, then it's starting to make uh, sense again. Yeah. You mentioned that what's really great about the science of gut health is this idea that we don't need to go and see a doctor or a specialist. We can manipulate it. We can change it for ourselves. Now, as a fellow medical doctor, that's something I'm incredibly passionate about. How can we disseminate information to people that means they can be, I guess, the architects of their own health rather than need to rely on other people? 
What have you found since you started spreading that through your books, through your podcast, you know, through all these mediums that you use? What sort of feedback have you had? Well, amazing feedback, really, of, of people writing me letters, sending me presents, um, all kinds of messages saying that just reading my my book, um, The Dark Myth or Spoon Fed, and saying it changed the way they thought about food. And actually, they taught the rest of their family, and suddenly they're feeling healthier, they're feeling better. And there's nothing quite like that as a doctor yeah. to feel that you've made not just a change to someone for a few weeks, but actually changed something probably for the rest of their life. And that's incredibly empowering for me <laughs> to, to know that, you, you know, just by writing some books and, and talking on podcasts, you can actually change people's attitudes long term. And so that really is a major motivating factor for me, rather than the hundreds of papers I've written that, you know, only a few academics read. I think getting these messages out and doing doctors out of a job is really what um, is it spurs me on and probably you too. Yeah, for sure. And, and Tim, you know, I've been really thinking long and hard over the past few years. What does it mean to be a medical doctor? For me, at least, in 2022. Because when I was at medical school, I always imagined it would be, you know, I would make impacts by seeing people and helping them change their lives and, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, do some tests, make some changes. And of course, that has incredible value. But I've realized more and more if we do our jobs right through spreading this information through the media, through podcasts and books, I kind of feel we're still doing our job as a doctor, just in a very different way. Well, reaching many more people and being much more efficient about it and not trying to just sort out the short-term problems, which I think is what modern medicine's still unfortunately dealing with and predominantly dealing with pharmaceutical solutions to those problems and that's just the way it's set up at the moment yeah. so i but i think we are seeing more and more what i am thinking is optimistic is is uh, you know doctors like you and, and many others who are suddenly uh, having a voice and speaking well because it was very hard to find any any doctors 10 years ago that would be you know, prepared to do this without feeling they were going to be ridiculed or told <laughs> off by their peers or you know, would simply not have the right language to appeal to uh, the general public. So I think we're certainly, I mean, it was a bit more advanced in the US, I think, yeah. but, but certainly in the UK, we've been very behind with doctors really scared to, to talk out and, and say what they think. Yeah. In terms of practical things, we mentioned that improving our gut health can improve all kinds of things in the body. And you mentioned food as a powerful driver. Um, it's a powerful tool to use for our gut health. What are some of the things that people should think about bringing into their diets to improve their gut health? Well, the first thing I think is to, to realize that we're not really in an obesity crisis, we're in a food crisis. And that's because we've lost an idea of what good food is. And the first thing to do is to realise you know, the difference between good and bad food and forget a lot of what we've been told about calories and fats and sugars and the fact that you can really tell a, a product by its calorie count or its percentage fat on a, on a label. And 
most people don't really realize you know, the difference between ultra-processed foods and whole foods uh, because they're the same category. You know, a bread is a bread for most people. And so I think the first thing is to just realize that actually mo virtually all the population don't fully understand what food is. So I think educating more about what food is is really important. Realize that quality is something we should be talking about and we should absolutely stop talking about calories. So in a way, that's the first mindset shift um, I would like people to, to do. And everything we're doing now and, and doing with the company Zoe is to completely ignore uh, the C word. Well, I want to get to Zoe and personalized nutrition shortly because I think that is really revolutionizing the way we are all going to think about our diets in the future. You mentioned you want people to forget thinking about calories. Now, to a lot of people, that's a very controversial statement. I happen to agree with you on that, but could you elaborate why is the idea of focusing on calories or even calorie counting, in your view, potentially problematic? Well, there's several reasons. The first is that if you judge a food or choose a food based on its calories, you're ignoring the quality. And manufacturers of foods use calories to disguise the poor quality of the ingredients, all the other uh, chemicals there that affect the highly, highly, effect that's highly processed that's going to have lots of other negative effects on your body. Second is it's uh, the estimates of how many calories are in it are, are wrong. Um, even in manufactured processes, they're sort of plus or minus 10%. And in restaurants, they're plus or minus about 200%. So you can't judge what's going in. You also can't work out what, how many calories you actually burn in a day either. Uh, huge differences. The idea that you know, all men have 2,500 calories uh, yeah. is, at all ages is complete nonsense. And you know, different times of year and all kinds of factors mean it impossible that you can work out what the right amount of calories is. So even if... Uh, you could accurately measure the amount of calories going into your body. It wouldn't be uh, personalised for you. It wouldn't be worthwhile. And even if you do go on calorie restriction diets, um, over time your body adapts and so uh, it changes its metabolic rate, therefore equalising. So that's why uh, calorie-restricted diets simply don't work. And also... In this country, in the US, uh, people are, the more they go down those routes, the more they tend to go down low-fat, low-cal, uh, processed foods. Yeah. And so they're often swapping calories for quality. And this, we know that these other products of food, understanding what's in ultra-processed foods is actually will drive your hunger, drive your cravings, uh, make you more tired, all kinds of things that they're not supposed to do because we're just supposed to think about calories and fat content. And so it's driving people down the wrong direction. And that's why we've got it so wrong over the last uh, 50 years. That's why uh, obesity rates are going up, diabetes rates are going up, and ultra-processed food rates are still going up in the US and the UK, which are the two top countries in the world. So that's the first thing. So it's it's about... Firstly, understanding you know the differences between foods. There's a huge difference between you know a cooking oil that's made in a highly processed way or olive oil. There's a huge difference 
between a bread that's bought in a supermarket that's been hanging around for a year, frozen and yeah. reheated uh, in front of you, uh, and a, a, a sort of artisanally made rye sourdough. Massive difference. And yet they're all called the same, and in most guidelines, oh, well, you know, that they'd be equivalent. So it's understanding those differences between ready meals and something you do yourself. It's yeah. all those nuances that we need to start thinking about much more than this ridiculous uh, concept of calorie counting. Yeah, I mean, I always say that, look, if someone's listening or watching this and they have found calorie counting helpful for them, I'm like, hey, go for your life. You know, I'm not, uh, certainly I'm not trying to change what anyone does if they're finding it useful. I've just never, ever found it useful with any of my patients at all. Well, 1% might like, might like it. So let's, yeah, that's yeah, great. So, uh, yeah, if, it, if it's working, great. A couple of things to respond there. Um, a few days ago, because when did it come in? In the UK, mandatory calorie labeling came in, what, a few months ago? Yeah. And I was in a cafe down the road from here a few days ago. And I can't remember what I chose, but it had some avocados and had some nuts in it. And I think maybe some salmon. I can't remember what it was. And then when I looked at the um, ingredients or something, I was looking at the menu, then the calorie thing popped up. And it was I wasn't used to it because I'm not used to seeing calories on the food that I look at. And the calorie count was pretty high, actually. So now I happen to, I think, know a reasonable amount about nutrition and what foods are nourishing me. And I thought, wow, if you don't know, you may look at that calorie count and go, no, no, I'm not going to eat this because there's a lot of calories. I'm going to get something else instead, which may have lower calories, but may be ultra processed and have detrimental effects on multiple aspects of our body. That's one thing I wanted to mention. The second thing is this reductionist way in which we often look at food now and constituent parts of that food. It's become so reductionist that particularly the focus on calories that I think we're missing that big picture on what food is and what quality food is. It's information, isn't it? It's, it sends the body signals that can influence our inflammation, our gut health, our moods, uh, hormones, uh, genetic expression, all kinds of things are influenced by food. And I think we forget that. And it goes back of mind when we simply look at just the calorie number. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we're agreed we should ban it and uh, <laughs> get it, get it uh, or in a font so small you can't see it on the, on the label, which is what they do to the other interesting stuff that you do want to know about. But uh, the restaurant stuff is interesting because New York um, introduced this over 10 years ago and have been doing stuff, there have been lots of publications on it and show that it works for a few weeks and then ultimately fails and then ultimately has a sort of reverse effect that people um, will choose the lower calorie options and eat much more of it than they would have done otherwise. So it's, uh, <laughs> and if you talk to the, also uh, the people preparing the meals, they just uh, guessing what's in those in those meals they've got no real idea and it's totally dependent on portion size and so which can change so easily so it's not only misleading but it's also likely to be unhealthy for us and it's just a a tick box for governments to say oh i've done something that you know the the food industry won't worry about and they'll be quite happy to go along with it and you know it ticks a box with doing something for people's health but it is absolutely of no use and totally agree 
it, it's obscuring all the other good things that are in that food that people should be picking it on. So that's, yeah, we're agreeing. When you go to a restaurant, you know, look at the ingredients, not the calories. In terms of the good things people should be focusing on then, so we know the importance of gut health. In terms of those foods or the types of foods that you would love people to be focusing on more, what are they? Well, gut-friendly foods. So, you know, I'm hoping one day we'll have a, a nice label on the food that gives it a like a calorie score, a gut-friendly score. And you are seeing some of the some of the companies starting to to you know have these labels on it but they're it's the wild west they can anyone can put anything on at the moment you don't trust it so what you got to think of is what do your microbes want to eat when you when you're when you're picking them out and generally if you pick foods that your microbes are going to be happy eating they're going to be good for you and they're also going to be good for the planet so as a very general rule uh that's a pretty good one. And what microbes like to eat is they like to eat predominantly plants. They like to eat uh, high-fibre plants that are, are complex and uh, they um, are like a variety. So there's no point only eating one type of salad every day, even if you love it. Do mix it up uh, because we've done studies showing that the sort of sweet spot for the number of plants you should eat in a week is around 30. And... You know, that's not a precise number, but you should be aiming for at least 30 plants, different plants a week. So bear in mind, that's so that all the, you're generating as many species of microbes that can feed off all the chemicals in each of those plants. So it's, it's like the perfect nourishment for them is to get that variety across the week. So if someone, let's say, loves broccoli and thinks, you know, I've got to eat more vegetables because I know it's good for me. I love broccoli. Okay, I'm going to have broccoli five, six, seven times a week. Compared to not having that, I guess that would have an improvement. But are you saying that for that person, because I think there'll be people listening to this right who now like who, broccoli. Who, who like broccoli or whatever, green <laughs> kale. beans or... Kale. Is a yeah, big one. got their favourite one and they yeah. have that all the time. Can you just sort of expand on that for that person that actually that's great, but you might want to think about expanding it more? Yes. I mean, so you've got to think of it as, yes, you love broccoli and broccoli has lots of fabulous in, uh, nutrients in it, but it's going to generate m certain microbes that like eating the broccoli and the broccoli side of side products. But if you just changed it slightly to, okay, I'm going to have a bit of cauliflower, which is the same family, but it's got different chemicals, different nutrients, you'll introduce different microbes to your, to your gut. And eating both together would actually create different chemicals that would be made by your microbes and have even better results. But if you are a f big fan of broccoli, you you know occasionally go for purple broccoli, which also has slightly different um, nutrients in it yeah. to, to straightforward ones. So it's, it's about thinking uh, about how you can just subtly change. You, you know, you can still eat your broccoli, um, but mix it in with other things that are similar and try other ones. There's so many uh, crucifers that are uh, fantastic to eat. So I think that's that's the idea. It, it's about mixing it up. It's about trying new stuff. And it's about enjoyment in food as well. So yeah. we all get into ruts. You know, however interested you are in nutrition, 
you know, even myself, I get into food ruts and I sometimes have to go to a restaurant and say, I'm going to pick something yeah. new I've never heard of. Oh, I don't know what that is. I'll have that one. Um, or a, uh, you go to a foreign country and, you yeah. know, there's some vegetable you don't know what it is, pick it. And I think that's what we've got to, we've got to change our attitude that uh, we have our comfort zone of, 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 particularly vegetables that uh, yeah. I think, you know, whether it's avoiding the ones from school or it's actually wanting the ones from school. But uh, realise that even within certain varieties like lettuces or cabbages, there are a huge range. Uh, you can now buy, you know, ca carrots with three different colours. Yeah. And they're all nutritionally different. So the way they're bred and, 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 and the chemicals in them are different. So for your microbes, they're seeing them as different. You might call them all carrots but they'll be different. Similarly, you know, different range of sweet potatoes and, and, and baked potatoes, and there can be purples and all these other things. Yeah. So it's that variety that's important. But don't get obsessed that we're only talking about different varieties of kale here because the 30 includes um, you know, nuts and seeds and uh, herbs. We don't know exactly how much, but increasing studies uh, are showing that just adding uh, spices, spice mixes to your, uh, your diet every, at least you know, a couple of times a week can enhance your yeah. gut microbes. So increasingly the evidence is, is building. It's this, the people who have the more diverse diets uh, do better. So um, snap yourself out of your routines, uh, whether it's for your salad or your breakfast, and, and try and work this in. So, so you mentioned out of those 30 that you recommend as a ballpark figure, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, herbs, uh, spices, lentils and things like beans as well, black beans, oh, yes. chickpeas, all those sort of things. Yes, I mean... Because suddenly the 30, when you include all that, it doesn't sound quite as daunting as when it just, oh, what, 30 vegetables? No, yeah. exactly. You think of a plate and I've, I've got to get 30 different vegetables <laughs> on my plate every day. No. Um, I mean, I, you know, I cheat. And for my, you know, my breakfast, uh, which I start now with, a you know, a full-fat yoghurt with kefir, you know, I will have a mixed uh, a bowl full of mixed nuts and seeds. And it gives me eight straight away. So you start so, on the day with eight. Yeah. Uh, I'm, uh, you know, and then I'll, if I've got something in the fruit bowl, I chop up whatever's in the fruit bowl, a pear or an apple. And so I might have, you know, start with 10. So if that's Monday morning, I've only got to, you know, find another 20. Um, and that's just one meal. So as long as you start thinking how you can introduce things, what meals are, you know, good to sprinkle stuff on, and you keep an open mind and, you you know, I, I think it's not only it's, it's a practical tip, but it actually it's a way... For people to really enjoy food yeah. and get excited about food again, and 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 not have this uh, this problem that you know in the US and the UK, we food is a sort of punishment because of you know it's something it's a fuel and it's a problem because you know we eat too much of it. We've got to start getting back to enjoying it yeah. and, and enjoying seeking out those foods and not just eating for the sake of it, you know, on the run. So you know that's that's the other side of it, but. You know, so I think there's 30 rules. Some people say immediately, oh, that's terrible. That feels like a burden. But it can be so easy. And, you know, just by preparing big jars of stuff and buying berries when you see them and freezing them or, yeah. you know, a new seed or nut and you just add it to your mix, it, it's incredibly easy. For, for someone who may be on zero or, or five at the moment and they hear 30, 
what does the research show in terms of, yeah, look, from wherever you are, even if you go from five to 10 a week, you're going to get an improvement, aren't you? You're going to improve the quality and the diversity of your microbiome. 30 may be the ultimate target, but for some people who can't achieve that, I guess we don't want them feeling bad about that. It's a case of, look, start where you're at and just see what you can do. Absolutely, yes. The 30 was just where we saw on the curve in the population that people sort of reached the maximum diversity. Oh, so going to 40 didn't really give them much more diversity? On average, no. On average. I mean, of course, you know, as, you know, we've talked about before, it's all individual. So there's lots of individuality here. So, you know, some people might be fine on 20, others might need 40. We don't know yet. So we're setting a, a rough rough yeah. bar. So don't knock yourself out if, <laughs> if uh, you're only on 28 one week and you feel like you're a total failure. Um, it, you know, it, it's fine. I think it's it's an aspirational goal. The more more important is to just keep it in mind, yeah. your mentality, you're looking for that. Everyone has weeks where it's hard, they're working, you know, they're having to travel, they're not prepared, or you're at someone's house and they're serving you boring food, you can't say, oh, is this all you've got? You know, this is terrible. Um, you, you know, it, we live in a practical world. Yeah. And yeah, just on average, have that as an aspiration and see how you get on. But, but, but as you, you said, for your breakfast, which I find fascinating, you'll get eight to 10, which almost insulates you from some of the issues that may arise with working late or traveling. And, you know, if you've got eight to 10 on a Monday morning, you're in a pretty good shape going into that week. So just talk me through that breakfast again, because <laughs> I, what I know is that people really enjoy the conversations I have with you. They feel really inspired to change. And I think hearing that you get eight to 10 plants in a breakfast, I think may be super helpful for people. So would you mind just sharing that again? Exactly what do you do for breakfast when you have it? Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Bon Charge, formerly known as Blue Blocks, who are supporting today's show. And many of you will have heard me talk about the brand Blue Blocks for a couple of years now. I have numerous products from them that my family and I use regularly to improve our health and well-being. And when Blue Blocks started, they had just two blue light blocking glasses available that they sold out of a drawer in their spare bedroom. Since then, they have grown all over the world. And today, they are about so much more than just blue light glasses. And for that reason, they have decided to change their name and rebrand as Bon Charge. Bon, of course, means good. Charge means energy, which I think really beautifully connects with what they are here to do. Now, they have a whole range of wellness products to help you get more out of your life. My wife, myself, and both of my children regularly wear their blue light blocking glasses, especially in the evening, and they have made a really big difference to our sleep. I also use their blackout eye masks, especially when I'm on the roads, and I find them very effective and comfortable. But I must say my new favorites are the low blue light bulbs, which are in all the bedside lamps in my house, and a recent addition to my life are their EMF protection earbud air tubes, which I got a few months ago and are now my go-to headphones. I really would encourage you to check out their new website. And for my podcast listeners, they are giving you 20% off anything that you buy. All you have to do is go to their website and use the coupon code LIVEMORE20 to save 20%. 
That website again is www.bonchharge.com forward slash live more or just put in the coupon code livemore20 to get your 20% off. Athletic Greens are also bringing you today's show. Now, as you're hearing in this conversation today with Tim, the right foods, the right whole foods are critical for us to maximize our physical health, but also for our mental and our emotional health. Now, for me, in an ideal world, there's no question, I would much prefer it if everybody got all of their nutrition from real whole food. But I know from 20 years of seeing patients that a lot of us struggle to find the time to consistently do that. That's why I'm a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1 by Athletic Greens. One tasty scoop contains 75 whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. It helps support energy and focus, aids with gut health and digestion, and it also helps support a healthy immune system. Now, AG1 has been in my own life for over three years now, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. It's also really, really tasty. So if you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. If you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access an exclusive special offer where they are offering my audience five free travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D, a critical nutrient for our immune system. You can see your details of the special offer by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. In my usual breakfast, which doesn't mean I have it every day, and I do vary it depending on where I am, uh, it's it's now become a, uh, a full-fat yogurt, a 50-50 with kefir, which is fermented milk, kefir, uh, as it's pronounced in the US, and which has even more... Mu- so there's like two probiotics in that wow. with perhaps, uh, we think about 15... My, microbial, 15 to 20 microbial species between them, if you're lucky. So that's also, I've got a probiotic start as well. And then I will go to my, my jar where I keep um, generally dried nuts and seeds, which I sort of collect as I go around uh, supermarkets and other places or markets and see, trying to find new ones. Wow. And uh, so it's almost like a hobby a pursuit for you to see these things and pop them in this jar it is yes and uh it varies sometimes it gets a bit low and down the bottom scraping the barrel and it's a bit <laughs> grainy and things uh and other times it's it's it's, it's over over bulging but I, I i am aiming to get uh you know because it's quite easy to get the common ones but the idea is you know you can buy easily the, you know chia seeds and uh these ones, but you wouldn't want to eat just those. Right. Um, so the idea is to is to mix them up with common ones. And there's nothing. It's not particularly the ones that are expensive or not. It's just this variety uh, you you can put in there. And I add also to that. You know, I got for example at the moment some pomegranate seeds. Yeah. Um, and I just stick those in. Um, and um, 
whatever's around I, I will use and whatever's in the fruit bowl I generally chop up. Um, I've, I used to eat a lot of bananas, but since I did my Zoe test and realized that they are really bad for my blood sugar, I've swapped them around and I use chop up pears. Pears and apples are particularly uh, fine for me and they will often go in. But anything I've got lying around will go in that mix. And I have that with a, uh, a double espresso, uh, which is also, um, people should know, a very good source of polyphenols and fiber and is very good for your gut. And coffee drinkers are healthier and uh, live longer and have less heart disease. So Coffee, so it's it's completely that's a, that's the opposite. A great, that's a great study to refer to if we like coffee, isn't it? Yes. If you don't <laughs> like coffee, it's a bit tough for you. But uh, are you a coffee drinker? I, I am very much so. <laughs> but most people don't realise that there's more fibre in uh, the average uh, cup of coffee than in a glass of orange juice, and we all know what orange juice does to your blood sugar. So I think it's changing our idea of what's healthy yeah. and what's unhealthy. Because just for context, ten years ago I was eating a you know, a bowl of muesli with some low-fat milk, uh, a cup of tea, and often a bit of a Tropicana orange juice. And that's terrible for me because this gives me a very large sugar peak, which is uh, my blood sugar goes up from its uh, normal level overnight to over two or three times what it is into a pre-diabetic range. So I... stress my insulin levels and as it comes down I get a sugar dip and that makes me more tired and more hungry several hours later and increasingly if I do that every single day as I did do it causes stress on the body increased inflammation and uh, alters my metabolism so I will put on weight very gradually and uh, not feel as good as I would do if I wasn't having those peaks so and this is you know, only new science and new technologies teaching us that because based on those macronutrients I was having with my muesli and my uh, tea and my, my low-fat milk, it was a very low-fat breakfast which ticked all the boxes in you know USDA guidelines or yeah. whatever they are. And most GPs would say, that's a oh, pretty good breakfast. Eh? You're, you know, you're healthy. You're not having eggs and bacon or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out for me, you know, it was processed muesli, and you could buy expensive ones, but they're still pretty much ultra-processed. There might be one or two, if you're lucky, one or two nuts in there, but far outweighed by the negative effects of the sugar. Yeah. So I think that's the, that's the big shift I've made. So I think breakfast is probably the most crucial meal of the day for a number of reasons. You know, we can discuss some of the other ones, but for people who do like breakfast, do like eating it, it's the one if we can all change ourselves... Generally, in our home, we're in control of the situation and we've got into a rut because most of us have a very similar breakfast every day and it's the one that's easiest to change and change all our habits. And yeah. if you change that, I think it sort of sets you up, your mentality for the rest of the day, the rest of the month, the rest of the year. You've just got that in your mind. That, that first thing you wake up, I'm going to get my microbes off to a good start uh, one way or another. And for me, 
it, it works. And I know yeah. the difference when I'm staying at someone else's house and I'm offered, you know, toast and marmalade. And uh, well, I was in France, in Paris recently, and I couldn't resist uh, a croissant. And, uh, you know, if you didn't like croissants, we well, got pain au chocolat or a baguette. You know, that was the, that was the choice. So, it, you know, you realise it can be hard, but it's changing what you think is normal. And I think that's really important. What happens in Paris? Because you're very in tune now with your body. You measure blood sugar regularly. You measure mic- your microbiome regularly. You're, you're in tune with how you feel after certain foods. So I get it. You're in Paris. You get tempted by the smell. You look at it. Oh, yeah, you know what? I'm going to have that. So number one, were you measuring your blood sugar at the time when you had that croissant? And number two, what did you feel? Like, could you tell, man, I'm like, were you hungrier? Was your mood off? Were you, you know, what were some of those things that now that you are in touch with this, that you were quite aware of in a way that you may not have been in the past? So, yes, I, I was tempted. And who who can go to Paris and resist a croissant? You know <laughs> yeah, I get I mean? it. And uh, I think we've all got to realise that, you know... There's nothing wrong with that either. There's absolutely no problem with it. And as long as you enjoy it and it's a good one, and but if you, you know, if it do feel it's stodgy and you feel it's just been reheated, don't eat it. But if it's a good one, absolutely eat it and enjoy it. Um, you may want to try and have a yogurt afterwards, but I couldn't get one. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I had I had the croissant and uh, I was my sugar went up to uh, ten and a half. I ten think and it, a half. Yeah. Can we just Give some guidelines to people who are not familiar with those terms. I know what 10 and a half is. Um, what should it be for people? Or what should they be looking for, the range? Well, so my resting one is about five and a half um, when I wake up in the morning, five millimoles. And uh, you'll have to do the calculation in the US um, yeah. milligrams. Well, we can stick to that, five. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, yeah. And so it uh, normally, well, I say normally, uh, we know from the the Zoe Predict studies, there's about a tenfold difference in how people respond to the same croissant. So there's no, a- but the average of if you took a hundred people, they would go from maybe four and a half to about uh, six and a half. Okay, so you get a small increase in your blood sugar when you have something uh, like a, a croissant or a, a baguette or a bit of white bread, and so that that's a normal response. We all go up a little bit, but there are some people that go up less and there's some people that go up more. There's about a tenfold variation that we saw in our Tenfold study. from what, the, the lowest rise to the top rise? Yes. yes. Wow. Yeah, so... And you went up to ten and a half. Yes. And I, you know, I've been higher than that, you know. And, yeah. um, if I had my orange juice, it would have, you know, taken it over 11. The same as with I have a, a bagel, which I used to think was fairly healthy. But um, for, for concepts of people, I know it's possibly not quite the same thing as it's, you know, blood. Sh- it's a continuous monitor as opposed to, uh, you know, let's say an HbA1c, a three-month average. But, you know, on that, 6.5 or above is type 2 diabetic, if that's your average, right? 6 to 6.5 in the UK. Well, 6 to 6.4, I guess, is pre-diabetic in the UK. I think it's 5.7 to 6.4 in, in, in America. Um, so 10 and a half is clearly very, very high. You certainly wouldn't want that to be happening day in, day out. No, exactly. And after it, you know, I I do feel more tired and uh, I sort of regret my croissant <laughs> after that. There's a feeling sort of, 
full of guilt, you know, especially when you can see the result in your blood. You get this instant sort of, um, oh, dear, why did I do that? Um, it wasn't that good, you know, but um, I'll try and find a better one next time. Uh, but, yeah, and you do, f I find that three hours later, I am feeling hungrier than I would have done if I had my uh, yeah. high-fat breakfast, which suits me. Um, but I do realise I'm, I'm different and my wife is quite happy to have lot, lots of croissants and uh, doesn't have any... Uh, it, it doesn't go up doesn't, to sugar in the same way? No, not at all. Wow. And so there's a few terms that have come up so far, Tim, like fermented foods, polyphenols, ultra-processed foods, um, breakfast potentially being the most important meal. And I don't want to come to those four points specifically because I think there's a lot to say on each one. But we, we are talking a lot about this personalised nutrition, uh, your company Zoe, these continuous blood sugar monitors. Let's take an overview. We're understanding more and more now with science, with research, that we all respond differently to food. The truth is, I've just seen people thrive on a whole variety of different diets. We know humans have always been opportunistic omnivores, right? Our diets can wildly vary depending on where we live on the planet, geography, climate, all these kind of things. So personalized nutrition potentially is going to help us explain this. Why are some people crushing it on a low-carb diet? Why are some people crushing it on a whole food plant-based diet? Do you think personalized nutrition potentially is the missing piece here? I think personalization is a key missing piece of the puzzle that we really haven't paid attention to and could help a lot of people in deciding which food to eat. And to do that, we've got to do away with the fact that one size fits all advice works and that it's all about this simple reductionist ideas. We are all omnivores, but we're all different. We're all unique. We've all got totally unique gut microbes. And I think we need to um, both think of foods that are going to help our gut microbes, which are all going to be individual, but also to get to the other that other half of perfecting our nutrition, it absolutely has to be personalised. Yeah. You mentioned about improving our gut microbes. Have you got evidence at the moment that let's say, let's say someone has currently got quite a barren gut microbiome? They've not been nourishing it. Let's say their diet hasn't been good and there's all kinds of other lifestyle factors like stress and sleep deprivation that, that can impact the gut, of course, which we can maybe touch on later. Their gut microbiome is not in a good place. So certain foods at the moment may have a certain response. Certain foods may spike their blood sugar. Do we know yet if they then spend a few months working on their gut microbiome, aiming to increase the amount of plant foods, the amount of diversity, and they improve the health of it, it's more robust, it's more diverse. Do we think then at that point the same food might generate a different response because their microbiome is different. We believe that's potentially likely, but we haven't been able to prove it. There right. aren't enough longitudinal studies. So the evidence base is that that makes sense, that that's what we see cross-sectionally. So if you just take people at one point in time and you compare them to lots of other people at another point in time, we see that, you know, there's a correlation, but we don't know its causation. And it's slightly difficult because we know that there's a two-way process. If you're sort of unhealthy and you're 
giving off inflammation from having too much sugar peaks, it's going to affect your gut microbes yeah. in that direction. So make them worse and attract sort of unhealthy microbes. And at the same time, we know that if you can dampen down those unhealthy microbes, you can actually improve things. So certainly in, in rodents, it works like that. What we don't know is yet in humans, but we're going to have the answers pretty soon as people, for example, doing the Zoe test get retested and we can see the people that have really changed their gut microbes. You know, can they change their um, their responses? My my guess is that it's it's not going to be quite as easy as that, and it's not going to happen overnight. No, I think it's a very slow process that could take you know months and years uh, as you change your physiology. But we do know cross sectionally that people who've got robust gut microbes do react less to say um, ultra processed foods. And we've got some data now, uh, again, from about 20,000 of the Zoe participants that um, that snack, snacking is also, um, you can tolerate snacking better if you've got a good set of gut microbes. So there's a sort of interaction going on cross-sectionally that we're seeing that I'm hopeful you know, we'll, we'll see yeah. in real life. So I think that's the aspiration. That, in fact, that's what I tell people is that the idea is to build up this really robust community of microbes, which are, I think, best thought of as like uh, your own personal pharmacy. So you want to have a pharmacy that's well stocked. You don't just want to only have paracetamol and Calpol, you know, that's it, you know, and a Band-Aid. You want the you want to have everything at your disposal, and to do that, you got to f give everything to your pharmacy. You have it mass supplied with everything it needs. So you know, the microbes are pumping out these healthy chemicals, and if they do that. Your body's in better balance. It can then deal with these stresses. Yeah, and it's not just stress of food. It's stress of everything. It's the stresses of life. It's you know dealing with poor sleep. It's dealing with um, uh, everyday problems as well. Yeah, what I found in practice, Tim, this is without any uh, of this kind of high tech testing. I remember certain patients who were quite reactive. They 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 felt they were reacting to quite a few different foods in sort of an intolerance. And as I helped them improve various aspects of their health, you know, reduce stress, physical activity, better sleep, yes, and gradual changes to their diet, which no doubt would have, would have improved the health of their gut microbiome over a period of time, sometimes maybe two years later, they would report back, and I've experienced this myself actually, that certain foods that I used to find problematic I no longer find problematic or those patients no longer would find them problematic. They would no longer in many ways feel that they were intolerant to those foods. Now, I find that fascinating because I don't have any data to prove this, what was going on there. But I suspect that working on these four pillars, food, movement, sleep and relaxation with them, helping them improve the health of their guts it made them more resilient. It gave them more of a buffer so that a couple of years later, they, they they just have got more, as you say, more resilience. I guess like a garden, isn't it? Where if the garden is well stocked, it's got a diverse plants, you know, it's less likely that one species or one foreign species or a weed is going to be able to overtake it all and overgrow it because you've got that resilience. Is that is that a fair analogy? It is. And I think the thing we've forgotten is that the way the a lot of the way the microbiome works, the chemicals that they produce, is through the immune system. And so 
most of the things we're talking about is having also a really well-balanced immune system that isn't overacting, you know, and a lot of people's currently these modern food allergies, etc., are caused by an immune system that's just out of kilter. It's either overreacting or underreacting. Yeah. And I think that's also the key to this, that the chemicals your microbes produce are going to keep all the the lining of your the gut where most of your immune system is, all those cells in the perfect condition, the right tune, so that they're not going to overdo it. And if you get that system right, then you're in this better balanced state. You know, it's like you're generally fitter. It's like an athlete yeah. who can do all kinds of things. But I think it does take time. It does take and I time, think, yeah. And I think what your point is is that, you know, in the modern world, we're looking for a quick fix. <laughs> yeah. And everyone says, oh, I've got, you know, my tummy hurts when I eat this. You know, I've got, I think... I'm set, getting sensitive to this. I want a quick fix. So I've got to cut it all out. And people just, we need to really educate people that it's a journey. It's not like there's a three-week course and you cut this out of your diet and you're done. It's, you know, you need to, we've got such a long way to go back to the guts of our ancestors that didn't have these problems that you can't do that in six weeks. You know, this is months, this is years. And but it's worth doing and, yeah. and it's not a hard thing to do and it can be a, a pleasurable thing to do. And I think that's what we're – it's changing that mindset that everything's got to be fixed quickly, yeah. a quick diet, a quick uh, healthy snack bar or whatever, you know, uh, some pills to saying, okay, this is a journey. I'm going to change my idea about food. And once I do that, I'm going to build up this – slowly build up this resistance like you – you know, you, if you were an athlete training – and you wouldn't expect to be super fit uh, and, no. r- and run a marathon in, in 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 four weeks. So that's the real difference. And I think I think we're we're in agreement here. And it's and it they all connect with each other. So yeah, they all do. And the microbes, you know, we talked. We didn't know when we started these studies how important things like sleep would be on your blood sugar responses. And Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So we the. This crucial study, the Zoe Predict study, was a thousand people all eating foods at the same time, in precisely the same manner. We've replicated this now thousands of times, and it turns out that if you got poor sleep the night before, you had like a thirty percent greater uh, sugar spike eating an identical meal. That's incredible. The same food, but the mm. way your body handles it, the yeah. the potential damage or the inflammatory consequences of that food are completely different depending on your sleep. That that's huge, isn't it? So, yeah, and also the, you know the way you re- reacted. Uh, you know, there was obviously a link. Also, people did a lot of exercise, had had lower peaks than those who didn't. So that was another factor. When did you last do your exercise? And you know whether you what sort of meal you had the night before also influenced the next day. So, and how much gap you had in that that time. So things that you wouldn't even have thought about um, are all coming together, and uh, they all interact a lot through the uh, gut microbes as well. So it's not like they're all in, independent; they're sort of working together with each other. So we know that shift workers, for example, who get poor sleep have poorer gut microbes and higher sugar responses. So uh, we also, we've just done a study on um, what we call social jet lag of mm. people who's have big party people at weekends. There might be some people listening who who can uh, say that, you know, very good during the week and then they get um, go to bed at completely different times and they change their clocks at weekends. And they have uh, 
you know, on the Monday morning, bigger uh, sugar spikes and their microbes are also um, uh, suffering as, as a consequence. So everything's about getting this balance right between all, all parts of the body. And because of the technology we've got now in measuring microbes and measuring these sugar responses, you know, we, as you said, we can suddenly start to see see it and not just uh, guess it. How tricky does this get as a scientist? Because it's not just looking at that food, is it? And saying, how does that food affect me with my current gut microbiome? You know, should I eat more of them? Should I eat less of them? Depending on my sugar response. Because as you've just mentioned, there's other inputs going in, how stressed you are, how sleep deprived you are, what time you had your previous meal the night before. So how easy is it or how difficult is it to actually make a, to draw a conclusion what this food does for me or you or for anyone else because of all the other inputs that are there as well? When we do the Zoe scores, for example, once you've done the test, it is a holistic test. Yeah. So, so we are accounting for your sleep, your exercise and your meals and your age, your yeah. weight, all these things together. So, and and we've talked about sugar peaks, but we haven't talked about the fat peaks, which is the other part of the the test is that we're looking at how fast the fat uh, is dispersed from your body, which we know in some people is very slow. Mm. So if you've still got lots of fat uh, molecules hanging around in your blood at six hours after a fatty meal, that irritates the blood vessels, causes inflammation, and is going to cause the same sort of metabolic problem. So it's combining all those things together gives you a holistic score about which foods are better or which are worse for you, and so you can make those choices. And at the same time, you know, we do give people lifestyle advice. Advice, you know, If you're sleeping terribly, you're doing shift work, and you're only getting four hours sleep a night, it's going to be really hard to, whatever you're eating, to be healthy. So I think increasingly... The advice on exercise and, uh, and and food and sleep and stress are all uh, related. Yeah. Um, so absolutely, and, and that, that, you know, I know that's that's your your core uh, teaching. Well, I've always found, you know, I've for me personally, Tim, I've always found that I can't limit it to one thing. It's it's everything. It's like I've always been drawn to looking at the whole picture and an individual and. You know, I've always been like this, but even doing, you know, the Doctor in the House series on BBC One in 2015 and 2017, where I'd spend four to six weeks with different families with a whole variety of different health outcomes. I got so much time with them. I got to see everything, how, you know, the way a husband and wife would talk to each other in the evening before, you know, how that would impact their health. And, you know, like I would see how they were eating. Are people eating together in a relaxed way or people you know, eating in separate parts of the house whilst also scrolling Instagram and Facebook. You know, I I, I guess one of the reasons that show was such a good fit for me is because I, I literally would see, oh man, I'm missing a big picture here in just 10 minutes or even 20 minutes with a patient. It's all of these factors play a role. And I think the science now on lifestyle, but even on the gut microbiome is showing that actually, yeah, all these factors actually play into the health of our guts. Yeah, no. And, uh, and it's realizing that all these things have a role and that Many of them, or most of them, you can you can you can change. Yeah. You know, we all go periods of time when it's tough. You've got young kids, or you've got some work things. You know, some things you can't work on at that particular time, but you can 
generally work on some of them yeah. uh, all the time. And I think that's that's also the approach to food. And, and, and we, we talked about people who can't get their 30 uh, plants every single week. You know, don't worry about it. There's other things you can do. And uh, it's it's changing the idea. So if I can't do that, I'll do something else or um, yeah. I'll, you know, uh, it's not all lost if you didn't do it that week. And I think that's the big problem. You mentioned Zoe a few times, right? So this personalized test, let's go through what is it? And I know, Tim, there'll be many people listening thinking, can I do it? Can I have access to it? So if you could just walk me, walk us all through what you're measuring and then also who is it available to and how can anyone listening to this show or watching it on YouTube, how are they going to be able to access this or when might they be able to in the future? So Zoe is uh, the Greek word for life and it's a company that myself and, and two entrepreneurs founded five years ago really to develop personalised nutrition and based on science. So we did the science projects first, which are these predict studies which we published in, in Nature Medicine and in many other journals. So we decided to do this actually do the science first before launching the product rather than the other way around, which is uh, often the case. And it's a kit that you basically reproduce what we did in the science projects at home. So you sign up, you go online on joinzoe.com in the US or the UK, and you uh, get sent a kit which contains three main elements to it. It contains... um, a continuous glucose monitor. It contains a, a skin prick test for your blood fat, which you do uh, six hours after a fatty meal. Uh, and it contains a, a gut microbiome test where we use uh, high-density sequencing, metagenome sequencing, not the single-gene one, uh, to measure your gut microbes. And at the same time in that pack, you've got um, some standardized meals in the form of muffins, which everyone has taken the same muffins at the same day. So you've now got, I think it's 25,000 people's results to compare with. Uh, you get uh, you download the app, which uh, allows you to log food, you log your energy levels, you log your uh, hunger levels for those two weeks, and you can do a number of little experiments yourself uh, in a standardised way, logging your results as you go. So that first two weeks is just to uh, get your baseline results compared to everyone else, and then a couple of weeks after that, you get your results, which are, a, as we discussed, a holistic score, but mainly focusing on the three components, your blood sugar response, your fat response, and your microbiome. And so all the foods that you can think of or scan in a supermarket or restaurant or at home are given a score from 0 to 100, and you're then... Uh, given the chance to sign up for a program for between uh, one and 12 months that gives you access to an online nutritionist who goes through your scores and then works out meal plans for you uh, to maximize all those three components. And that's the basic idea with uh, it's combining foods, you know, and you can still have a food you don't like if you combine it with something that um, that isn't good for you with, with something that is good for you so your score um, can match up. So the idea is to very much personalise your meals, at the same time making it fun, make it interesting and never once talking about calories 
and trying to change the way people think about eating as well and uh, trying to reduce maybe th unnecessary snacking, uh, trying to make your, your meals fun and substantive and, uh, as you said, giving yourself time to eat and prepare uh, and actually enjoying the food and trying new ones. That's the yeah. whole idea. So, you know, you get this app and this amazing list of different foods and things you can eat, some of you never thought of trying. But, um, you know, that's the whole idea is we make it fun and exciting and you've got an, an online nutritionist uh, which is proving extremely popular. And yeah. we've done a – we're doing a randomised controlled trial to see exactly how it, how it works in a scientific way. But of the few hundred people that we've looked at um, in a sub-study, you know, most are losing um, uh, eight to nine pounds in weight uh, and – over 85% report less uh, ap less hunger and, importantly, more energy. We didn't expect that. But yeah. energy is a – we didn't – we hardly we, – it was an afterthought. We thought we'd record it in the app. Yeah. Um, and it turns out it's highly correlated to uh, keeping your sugar peaks down and your uh, fat peaks down. I think energy is a big one. It's in some ways the currency of life, isn't it? It's – we all know what it feels like when we've got low energy. We don't want to do anything. Our food choices are affected. We don't want to cook something fresh. We take the quick and easy option. You know, energy is everything, I think. And I would argue that if there's one thing we want to improve, certainly in my experience, more than anything else, it's energy because all our decision-making, all our behaviors, I find are so much better when we've got energy. But as you know, so many people are struggling with that. Given that it's personalized, um, and I know you've set me as overkit and I still haven't done it. Week on Monday, I will be doing it. So when you come on the podcast next time, when your next book is out, which I'm really excited about, um, we'll definitely talk about how I found it and what results I got. Given that it's personalized, are there some general trends that are applicable to people who haven't done it yet, who are like, okay, I get it's personalized, but is there anything I can learn from what you have learned so far? Yeah, I mean, I think if I tried to say, well, I, what have I learned without knowing what my results were, just look at other people's results, is that many, you know, there's a proportion of people that are really sensitive to carbohydrates and there's a proportion that aren't. And it's hard to tell, obviously, if you've got a lot of, Perhaps diabetes in the family, you might suspect that that's, that's, that's true. Is that refined carbohydrates and whole food carbohydrates? Yes. Yeah. It, it is. I mean, uh, the, more of, the more refined, the worse, but it, it's a spectrum. There isn't a, an absolute cutoff. No. Uh, just but as you expand there, just to share my own experience, because I have used the CGM and continuous glucose monitor a couple of times. I don't use one regularly. Um, but I did early one in the year and I've, I've got one on at the moment. And last week over dinner, it was a pretty healthy meal. And I think the carb with it was sweet potato mash that my wife had made. Oh man, I can't remember what it went up to, but it was a big rise with my blood sugar about an hour, maybe an hour, hour and a half after the meal, which really surprised me. And I found with other things, like if it's a few boiled potatoes, or a small amount of white rice, actually it doesn't anywhere near to the same degree. Now there's a few other things I need to tweak and I need to replicate with different foods just to see which one it was. But 
sweet potatoes are considered, you know, a healthy carb, a whole food carb. Sure, it was mashed, so that was, you know, that's changed it somewhat. But that was really interesting for me because I may have continued eating that, but that will definitely make me think again about how much do I want to have this if it's going to push my sugar that high. So that, I guess, speaks to what you're saying and what you're finding with people. Some people are exquisitely sensitive to carbs, even whole food ones. And yeah, and there's and different carbs. So, you know, there will be some things that, you know, there's a difference between pasta and rice and and bread for some people. And, and, and understand there's a huge difference, you know, within those ranges. And I mean... Uh, People will say, okay, well, I, porridge is healthy, isn't it? Most people tell me, oats, that's healthy. But, you know, for me, they're not. But, you know, I tried three or four different types of um, uh, oat porridge. And what that tells you is the more refined, the more ground up, the more it's been uh, factory made and the quicker it is to make, the, the higher my sugar peaks go. Yeah. So as a general rule, if you pick things that are less refined, less processed, and take longer to cook, it's because, you know, their outer coating is, you know, that that those that energy is stored much, much, uh, and it's harder to get out. So, so steel cut oats, things you have to, you know, cook overnight, don't have half the sugar peak of the identical, um, you know, Quaker oats, uh, instant meal, which for me is just like pure sugar. So I think, it's yes, so, so hearing porridge is healthy doesn't mean anything. No. For who? Structure. And it's the structure of food. It's, <laughs> yeah. you know, because you've broken down that oat, it, it can be in its whole form. You can have it you know, cut. You can have it rolled. Uh, you know, or you can have it so finely powdered and dry, air-dried that that sugar just you know, rushes out and you haven't got any fibre. So understanding the differences between foods, I think, is, is, is a really important lesson. So that we mustn't over-categorise, again, reduce everything to saying this is good, this is bad. Within each category, there are good and bad foods that we all need to learn about. It's like hummus and chickpeas or almonds and ground almonds. You know, they have totally different amounts of things in them when the structure changes. Given how much data we can learn about ourselves through continuous sugar monitors... Are we not getting to the point where it's almost in every single person's best interest to at least do a two-week trial with one of them to at least say, oh man, I'm having that every day. Maybe I shouldn't be having that. Obviously, you've got to be careful with people's relationships with food and food is so much more than just the blood sugar response, isn't it? But I don't know, have you got any comments on those things? I think um, people can get obsessed with uh, blood sugar monitors and there are people, you know, get obsessed about all kinds of things about food and, and reducing it to purely a sugar peak uh, is not the right answer yeah. because you can go down completely the wrong direction and just by adding double cream to everything, you can dampen down the sugar response. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that eating a bucket full of double cream every day is good for you. So um, I think you've got to see it in, the, in that holistic light of all the things yeah. we talked about. And your fat response. Some people can cope with a lot of fat, other people can't. And there are good fats and bad fats as well. So it's just part of the equation. But I think it does give people like an insight into, you know, the fact that something we shouldn't necessarily need, orange juice actually is not a health food. And it's, uh, you know, it should be in the alcohol category or something like that that you take 
Um, it's not good for anybody, really. Um, which, if everyone did have a glucose monitor on every time they, they had a, a glass of orange juice, they would see. It's, uh, you know, the same as a Coca-Cola. And it would just be, put them in the same sort of category. And so you'd say, well, okay, um, that should go in the same. So it would, it would change people's ideas of things. And I think, you know, I, I, there will be a watch soon that do, I, I think probably within five years that does the same as a, yeah. a glucose monitor. And once that happens, everyone like counting steps and things, they'll probably want it. But I think we have to be very careful. We don't don't then over you know make the same mistakes yeah. of reductionism that we've made up to now. Because humans love to make it simple, and nutritional food is anything but simple. Yeah. I mean, I was playing devil's advocate a bit, asking should everyone have one? Because my concern with trackers in general, which is why I've used this twice. So I had two weeks at the start of the year. I'm in a two-week cycle now. I, it's, I've said this before on the show, but I always notice this with blood pressure monitors with patients. People say, should I get one? Should I get a home blood, blood pressure monitor? And, you know, it would depend on some patients would. And then it was pretty much a 50-50 split. For some people, it was awesome. They'd check it once a week or twice a week. They wouldn't stress about it. They'd use it as a way of keeping them on track with their lifestyle changes the other 50% would check three, four times a day. Anytime it was slightly up, they'd recheck it, they'd get anxious, they'd come back in, that would drive their blood pressure up even more. And I thought, wow, the same tool can be helpful or problematic depending, in some ways on the personality type, depending on who that person was. And I, and I suspect, you know, because there's tracking everything now, there's sleep trackers, there's step trackers, there's blood sugar trackers. And I think... We've just got to be careful, as you say. I think a blood sugar tracker for two weeks for anyone is you bring stuff that you don't know about that's hidden inside you. You bring it into the light. Like if you suddenly see your glass of orange juice that you think because of all the packaging, it's got vitamin C and all the things the packet says is helpful for you. And you see yourself going to 10 or 11 on, you know, way over the diabetic range you might think twice about having that, you know, several times a week. And if all that does for you is, is help you realize, or maybe someone who has porridge every day and they realize, wait a minute, porridge is spiking my blood sugar massively. It's going to, you know, do this for five years. I'm going to end up type 2 diabetic. Yeah. Then that has value because they can then use that and they don't have to check it all year. They can just, they can move on. And maybe they do it, I don't know, maybe it's the sort of thing in the future they'll do once a year or once every six months ago. Oh, this is what's happening at the moment. Okay, I'm going to make some changes. I'm not going to look. I'm going to work on my gut microbiome. And then six months later, I'm going to put it back on again just to see. I think that's how I'm going to be using this. Um, just because I think I could also potentially, because of my personality type, I think I could run the risk of getting obsessed, which is why I'm very cautious about trackers. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I, I, I don't see... This is a permanent feature on the human body. No. I think it would be a real mistake. Uh, we'd be creating super neuro neuroses and you can artificially, you know. You can you cheat can, it, can't you? You can cheat the system. Yeah. And, and, and again, forget the point of it, which is getting quality food into your gut microbes. Um, so, I, you know, I think doing it once in a programmed way, it's not actually that easy to do it yourself. And I think... Oh, that's interesting. That, I mean, we've found, you know... I. I've done several times I've told people, oh, for radio programs, you know, do it and we'll discuss it. 
if, if unless you've got clear guidance on what to do, what to look at, what the peaks are, when to measure it, uh, it's you get the wrong impression about things. Yeah, and, which uh, can be even more problematic. Yeah, you, you measure the wrong time after eating a bread, you miss the peak, you know, you don't know what's going on, you can't compare it to anyone else, you get the wrong impression. So I think in a standardised way, um, doing it, but I, I wouldn't do it more than once a year, I don't think. Yeah. Um, and I found that even though I've used maybe 20 times or so, you know, I'm not obsessional about these things and I do often forget I've got it on. I sort of know how I'm going to respond to things now. Yeah. And so it, it, you have that early lesson, which is really good, gives you a, a real sort of jolt about, gosh, I was wrong about food. You know, I was wrong about my breakfast. I, you know, this is, I'm going to educate myself more. That's what I think we should uh, be, be aiming for, which comes back to this, you know, yeah. the, the idea we, we were, oh, you know, what is good food? How do we, how do we tell and for people without a glucose monitor, you know, one in four people do feel uh, energy levels. And I think... Uh, what, they feel them going down? Down, but yes. Uh, but some people don't, you know, and... Um, you mean when their blood sugar spikes and crashes, some people get a l low energy, but other, others don't at that time? Well, or they're not particularly observant enough to, to yeah. notice it unless they're being prompted, you Got know. It. And so I think... But I think... This is perhaps one thing we should be promoting is that, you know, if you're doing self-experiments and you, you know, you haven't got the money to to pay for these things, which are still not in everyone's reach, how to listen to your body more to say, well, am I hungry? What's my energy level like? And just sort of make a note or, you know, keep a diary of things is the other way to do this. And yeah. there are a certain portion of people who, who can judge pretty well what foods are. But the nice thing about our study was people were blind to it. Yeah. They didn't know their results. And so when we saw these peaks and troughs, which one in four people had really big ones, you know, we and they were on they didn't know why they were feeling tired. They just reported they were tired on the app. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. You mentioned breakfast a few times. Um you often appear in the media uh, with some... I'm Mr. Breakfast. Yeah, some pretty crazy headlines. Now, I've, I've been around in media enough to know not to trust the headline. <laughs> um, but skipping breakfast, potentially being good for us, is something that's often attributed to you. Now, can you expand? What is your view on breakfast? Um, and I guess the, 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 the kind of context here is that for many years, people have said breakfast is the most important meal of the day. They have, and that, that's really the, where I came into it and really writing the diet myth. My idea was to look at the data and challenge some of these myths, which I thought was, it was a long-standing one. And strangely, it's still there. If you go to the NHS 8 to 8 healthy eating tips, it's still there, um, despite all the evidence saying that there is no evidence that uh, skipping breakfast is bad for you. So that's the first... Well, the, countless studies now show it is not bad for you. It doesn't cause metabolic problems. It doesn't cause diabetes or you to gain weight, which is, or even it doesn't cause kids to mm -hmm. perform badly at school, which was the other worry uh, that was planted by the food companies in people's minds. Some studies have shown that it actually uh, can induce some weight loss. Um, now, that's not totally consistent, but it is certainly going in that direction. The meta, when you combine all the studies together, that's what you show. But increasingly, um, the idea that this might be true is 
supported by science showing that it may not be the the breakfast itself, but just the gap you're leaving overnight. And this whole question of not just what we eat, but how we eat uh, is becoming more and more important. And everyone's heard about intermittent fasting, but uh, the the new thing that all, all the nutritional scientists are talking about is restricted time eating, yeah. which I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've talked about many times. But the finding about skipping breakfast was, was in a way a pointer to that actually we've been missing this whole idea that the idea of we should be eating little and often uh, throughout the day has actually been the wrong advice and that we should be uh, compressing our meal times. Yeah. Perhaps doesn't matter whether it's um, two or three meals, but they should be in a shorter time frame. And so uh, the sweet point seems to be somewhere between, you know, in about 10 hours of eating and, and 14 hours of um, not eating. And that's an, that might be the reason that skipping breakfast for most people, not everybody, and again, I think there's quite a bit of individuality here. There are some people who generally feel hungry when they wake up and feel tired if they don't have some breakfast, but I would say the majority of people don't, and it's just a cultural or a sort of um, lifestyle uh, reason to get some food in you when you're in your ho- your home comfy environment. But increasingly, I you know, I've started myself to either skip breakfast or have it at 11 o'clock yeah and, and particularly post-covid people are working at home now they are in much more control of their meal times yeah and it's a great time to to start so that that's a pra- bit of practical advice that everyone can do either try skipping it and see how you feel uh and if uh that doesn't feel right or you still enjoy breakfast with you know, its ability to have your your yogurt and your or your nuts and seeds, which would be a, you know, if I missed out on that, would be problematic. Um, have it later, and uh, have yeah. it as a sort of, or either as a brunch or just a couple of hours before you you have your other meal. Yeah, I, th- I think it's super helpful. And as you say, the problem with these cultural uh, fixed ideas are that often people are not paying attention. They're not feeling hungry, but they think. I should have breakfast because I keep hearing that and the scientists say it's important to have it. And the problem is it's very hard to say breakfast good or bad because it depends, number one, what do you mean by breakfast, right? What time is it? Is it at 6am? Is it at 11am? You know, Um, it also depends on the rest of your life. Do you enjoy a big meal with your family at 9pm, right? Maybe people are working late and actually that's the way that they connect at that point or whatever. In which case, you know, at 7am you may not be hungry. Whereas if you eat, like I try and eat with my kids at, you know, when I can uh, around work, about five, half five. Like I genuinely feel at my best when I'm doing something like... um, I'd say an 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. or a 9 a.m. till 6 p.m. eating window, even sometimes a, a 10 till 6, like an eight-hour eating window, I feel great. I don't feel hungry before. I don't feel hungry afterwards. I sleep like a baby. And it works for me, my job and my lifestyle. At and this point in time. At this point in time, exactly. So therefore, these studies, and, and I, I say with all this public health advice, I'd encourage people to, you know, think a little bit, you know, become take a bit of agency over themselves, use what you're saying or what I'm saying or what they hear, but also try and filter it and apply it in the context of your own life. I think that's important, isn't it? Yeah, and it's very different. If you've got young kids, you're going to have a, a different time scale than if you're, you know, 
uh, grandparents and um, yeah. and you've got you know the time is is in your retired and you've got you know you can plan everything yourself so because there's a social aspect to food of course yeah and we mustn't forget that really important that people don't obsess about yeah i i do worry that um and certainly uh, looking at some of the zoe customers in the us it's about 30 percent are already on restricted time eating when they're coming into the program so it's huge in the us compared to the uk but some people might get so obsessed about their eating times that they forget uh, the healthy aspect of the food they have to eat and the enjoyment and the social aspect. Yeah. And I think, again, for people who are a bit, you know, obsessional on it, uh, you have to make it not so extreme. And I think that's the danger of people trying to outdo each other and say, oh, I can, I can only need to eat in four-hour window and, and yeah. I'm fine. And it's just not – you wouldn't get people in in Italy or Spain or France – uh, who enjoy the long meals and the you know and the socialising doing that and they're the ones who live longest and you know are healthier so we have to remember that some of those countries of course are having later breakfasts aren't they that or they're sort of technically skipping the breakfast that we might have in the UK certainly at that time yeah well I, I work in Spain a lot and you know you usually don't finish eating till 10 p.m. Uh, sometimes 11 but you rarely see anybody having breakfast before 11 uh, if they do or they don't bother this it's just a it's just a coffee yeah so i think diff there's different cultural ways it? to it we've just assumed that lots everyone has you know the same habits in different countries but they, you know there's a north south divide in in times of people eating in europe um uh, but in the south it's not like they're at 7 a.m eating breakfast yeah um and i think the ones who tend to eat earlier tend to have more earlier breakfast but i think it's it's very personal and it is and but most people i speak to when you say well the first thing you wake up you know and you've had a cup of tea or coffee most people don't feel really hungry you know it's not like that's the first thing on your mind yeah. if you had a choice of things to do you know yeah just to finish off this conversation tim uh we've mentioned polyphenols and fermented foods we didn't go into that much detail on either one could we just briefly go through what are polyphenols why should people think about getting more of them in how can they do that and then potentially the same for fermented foods as well so polyphenols used to be called antioxidants and they are a group of well over a thousand different chemicals that are in plants in all plants to different levels and they're defense chemicals that plants use to defend themselves against sun or uh, predators and uh, they or often when you eat them have a slightly bitter taste, uh, can cause astringency, just like if you have a, uh, a really old red wine, it gives you that, that taste on the tongue. That's because the skin of the grape has a lot of these polyphenols in it. And uh, they are in uh, brightly coloured foods, they're in slightly bitter foods, and they're in complex foods. And so they're in things like coffee, dark chocolate, red wine, uh, extra virgin olive oil, uh, nuts, seeds, berries particularly. So these are all health foods. And these polyphenols we now know are useful for us because they feed our microbes and those microbes then convert them into other healthy chemicals. We can't really use them ourselves. So it's quite interesting. It's, they really are like specific fish food that we're eating. Wow. Uh, that, that provides us then, you know, then they, these chemicals then get back into our bloodstream and 
dampen down inflammation and keep us healthy. So that's really important. And there's big differences between foods, you know, like the choice of a cooking oil between, you know, a highly refined vegetable oil and an extra virgin olive oil is massive. Um, Can you see that in Zoe as well? Um, well, it's reflected in the scores. Yeah. So we would give a different score to vegetable oil than we would for uh, uh, extra virgin olive oil, both depending on the quality of the fats, but also its effect on your, your gut microbes. So all of the scores do reflect uh, polyphenols and... Um, the fermentation, which is the next uh, thing we're talking about, which also affects the gut. So polyphenol is really important, and uh, but it's but you've got to understand a bit more about the food. So chocolate, for example, all chocolate has some polyphenols in it, but it's only in the cocoa part of it, not the um, the artificial bits, and not the sugar, and not the milk. Which is why the dark chocolate is dark chocolate is packed option. with it. Milk chocolate is is has very little and is overridden by the sugar. So again, it's it's all about the quality and looking at the labels and seeing what's on the food. Yeah. And you know, difference between picking a really brightly coloured lettuce or a an iceberg lettuce is massive um, in terms of the difference of the polyphenol. So the colour of the leaves and the way the, the lettuce is gives you a different indication of how many polyphenols. So what are we looking for when we're picking our lettuce? Um, you're looking for one with loose leaves um, that is brightly coloured, uh, often different colours, reds, uh, and, you know, and that's true for a lot of foods. So generally, it's a bit like the berry. The brightly coloured berries yeah. have more of these things than the other ones do. So this is, a, you know, we're just understanding this this sort of science. So some some of the things we thought were good for us aren't, and uh, uh, this is another thing to look out for. So polyphenols are really good. Fermented foods are anything that has live microbes in it. Uh, so it's like probiotics na naturally occurring in food. So by the time you're eating it, it's actually got live microbes that can still replicate and produce chemicals. And so everyone knows yogurt has that, but kefir has uh, several times more microbes than yogurt, and it's a thinner version of it. And then you've got... Um, all, all, uh, you've got kombucha which is fermented tea which is becoming more popular which has even more than kefir in it and has uh, different fungi and wow. yeasts so often up to 30 different microbes you can find in a in a proper kombucha and you've got then uh, sauerkraut used uh, you know in central and eastern europe which is fermented cabbage and of course going one level above that you've got kimchi uh, One which, level above that in terms of the number of microbes? Number of microbes and diversity because you've also got, as well as cabbage, you've got, uh, you've got garlic, you've got chilies, uh, you've got uh, onions and other peppers and things. So the more complex it is, often the, the greater the richness of the And that's the super microbes. helpful because sauerkraut is known to be a, for people who are, you know, who read about gut health, they know that sauerkraut is one of those fermented foods that's really helpful. But this idea that you can upgrade to kimchi because it's not just cabbage, it's like going back to the very start of this conversation, the diversity, it's got more plant foods in it. Therefore, um, it's going to you know feed more and more microbes. That, that's super helpful, I think. Yeah, and, there's, and then you move on to the, if you like Japanese food, of course, anything with miso in it is... Uh, 
is is really important because miso is fermented soy and so there's plenty of um, fermented soy dishes that you can get as well that uh, tempeh and uh, other other ones like this so fermented food is really big uh, be careful you don't buy ones with vinegar in it yeah. that are killed and uh, you know try and smell that when you open open it check it hasn't got vinegar in it and you can use your tub with the smell if it's if it's live or not and having a small amount every day is what I try and do and uh, there's no point in having a, a feast once a week we know that these things die out so for practical reasons try and have a small shot of one or two of these every day and that's why if you have it at home in your fridge you're near the for breakfast or your first meal you've got it uh, or you have it you know at night when you come back I, I love that that reminds me of what I talk about a lot which is like I you know a lot of people who listen to the show know that I do a five minute strength workout every morning whilst my coffee's brewing it's a habit that I've stacked onto that so I never miss it because I never miss my coffee so I never miss that little five minute workout every morning and I always say that I I found that little regularly actually has a very powerful effect on the body no matter what habit it is what no matter what behavior we're trying to bring in and I guess bringing that into gut health as well a little bit every day with a fermented food is better than binging on the whole jar maybe on a Sunday when you have more time something like that yeah and I've changed and cheese is the other thing of course which we forget is is fermented if it's real cheese but um you know, we're not talking about craft slices. We're talking um, uh, that you know, your cheese that doesn't have to be unpasteurized, although that helps because you do get extra microbes if it's raw milk cheese. Uh, but most cheeses are good. The ones with uh, blue lines and fungus on them have even more microbes. Yeah. And just having a small amount of that every day is absolutely healthy. You know, there's a myth that cheese is bad for your heart and things. Absolutely no evidence that's true. Um, a small regular amount of that had, you know, and instead of a, a pickle that might be high in, in sugars and, and salts, a traditional English pickle, you know, try sauerkraut or kimchi with it. Yeah. Uh, and I think increasingly you can just build this into your, your daily diet so you are having these things regularly. And you just have something in the fridge, you just pop on your plate as an extra. You know, and I think that that's what I found is having the ingredients ready around you so you can just add them whether it's you know the original seed mix or it's the the kimchi pot or the, you just grab it and you stick it in and you you know like like your or just after your coffee you have a you know if you're in a hurry you just have a quick a shot glass of your your kefir or your kombucha and yeah. uh, you're sorted so that's fermented foods and i think everyone you know needs to learn about them yeah uh, other countries have been doing it for centuries and we we've just lost out just before we finish off, Tim, I think it's an important point to make that something I'm observing a lot is that a lot of people, or certainly, you know, that there's a significant amount of people who struggle to increase the amount of plants in their diet. They get symptoms, they get bloating, they don't feel good. And you will have seen this online, uh, as I have, that there is a growing movement towards more and more severe diets, more and more restricted diets. Now, a lot of people follow these days uh, what what has been called a carnivore diet, which is you know all meat or predominantly uh, meats with very few other things in it. And I know people, I know patients actually, and 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 I know people who are 
thriving on these diets compared to how they felt before. A lot of people say, my joint pain's gone. Um, I've got more energy. My skin's better. So therefore, you can see from their perspective that they're feeling better compared to where they were before, yet they're now hearing someone as respected as yourself talk about all the, the benefits of plant foods for the gut microbiome. And I think a lot of these people feel stuck between a rock and a hard place. They they want to apply what they're learning, but they also know that they feel better on a on quite a wildly different diet. Um, have you come across this and do you have any kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, well, like, yeah, I've had people write to me saying I've been on a carnivore diet for two years and I feel great. You know, I don't understand what you're on about, you know. Um, and I say, well, everyone is different. You could have a unique set of gut microbes that seem to uh, cope with this. But my worry is that although initially changing from, say, a high-carb high diet or an ultra-processed food diet to carnivore diet, you, you will get, uh, you will feel better in a number of ways. Long term, I worry that you know we are omnivores, and our gut microbe diversity does depend on giving them enough to feed. If you're only eating meat, uh, you're going to have a very limited range of gut microbes to produce all these chemicals yeah. and vitamins for you. So, I would just urge those people, you know, not to give up meat, but to start introducing small amounts yeah. of regular different plants. It doesn't have to be huge quantities. But, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be starchy ones either. It could just be, you know, the leafy green ones, which there is a, a variety. You know, certainly nuts and, yeah. and seeds and mushrooms are, you know, also good. And, you know, we've, we haven't talked about mushrooms, but no. I've, the last few years, I've become a real big fan, you know, of this is an amazing source of protein and uh, nutrition that um, I think is, you know, probably going to say, end up saving the planet as uh, as we move forward. But, you know, there are lots of um, nuances, but it, there isn't one size fits all. Yeah. And there may be people out there who don't need 30 plants a week. I'm not uh, saying it is yeah. absolute rule. Uh, I'd love to do some studies on these yeah. people. So it'd be fantastic if some carnivore dieters did the Zoe study and we could look at their gut microbes. Well, I have someone <laughs> who I'm gonna someone just for you actually <laughs> someone who is literally thriving and has tried yeah. vegan diets before has tried low carbs and literally finds that going full carnivore and i know this lady super well and she is thriving high energy high cognition can work all day can can run marathons i'm like there's something going on here where she is thriving on this diet and so i'm gonna i i'd love to know so i'm actually gonna talk to her and put her in touch to, well you know so that would be interesting, wouldn't it? What's actually going on in the microbiome? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, hopefully in five years we'll be looking back at this and say, well, we didn't know much, did we? You know, because science, I'm sure we will. science is uh, exciting and it's always changing. And, you know, our views, you know, we, we found a year ago this, this microblastocystis, which is in one in four British people have this parasite. It's not a micro, it's a parasite that a few years ago, you'd have had to go to the tropical medicine place and they'd have given you powerful antibiotics to get rid of it because they said, oh, you, that will give you traveler's diarrhea. Now, we know that it's associated with good health and lower fat levels. Isn't it associated and, with lower autoimmune risk as well, potentially? Yes, it, it dampens it's, down inflammation, yeah. visceral fat. Uh, and one in four Britons have it. We've discovered only one in, far, one in 20 Americans have it. Wow. But it's in 100% of all hunter-gatherers, 100% of all uh, Indians that have been studied, uh, of all developing countries. This is our normal state. 
to have this parasite. So we still know so little yeah. about what's going on that who knows, there could be hidden fungi or uh, other other parasites <laughs> inside our body that love meat and can produce sorts of chemicals. I'm not ruling it out. Yeah. I'm just saying on average, you know, do be careful because you might get great short-term benefits, but don't wipe out your microbes because it's really hard to get them back. Yeah. So that's super fascinating that it's in 100% of hunter-gatherers. That is so, so interesting. But it looks like it's tracking with the amount of ultra-processed food we eat. Uh, As know, in the more we the eat, the less we get? Yes, yes. Wow. The less but it could also be antibiotic use as well, you know? Yeah, who knows? Tim, it's always a delight to chat to you. You're a wealth of information, a wealth of knowledge. You're doing incredible work at helping improve the health of the UK and many people, many hundreds of thousands around the world. Thank you for that. Just to finish off, um, podcast is called Feel Better, Live More. When we feel better in ourselves, we get more out of our lives. You've covered a lot today, but if we were just going to simplify it right down at the end of this conversation, what are some things that people can think about bringing into their lives to improve the way that they feel? Hopefully, they will think about food in a completely different way. Think about food as the quality of the food, both for taste, enjoyment, and for your gut microbes. They'll go for a diversity of foods that they can eat. Uh, plants, particularly, getting those 30 plants a week, getting picking ones high in polyphenols, getting a regular shot of some fermented food in your diet, and reducing as much as possible ultra-processed foods, and thinking about experimenting with the way they eat, the timings of their meals, skipping breakfast, maybe uh, tying, trying some mild restricted time eating, just to see how you cope with it, and getting uh, some personalized nutrition testing done, which you can get done in the US or the UK to really find out much more about yourself and about how you can start this journey to uh, find the best foods that suit your own body. Tim, thank you very much. I look forward to part four in a few months when the new book's out, but thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, do have a think about one thing that you can take away and start applying in your own life. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, this is the final episode in the current season of the podcast. I plan to be back right at the start of September, and I can share with you that I have some absolutely brilliant guests lined up already. I just want to say thank you to all of you who take the time to listen and share these episodes each week with your friends and family. I do not take that for granted. I know that your time is precious. Now, each week, my hope is that the conversations I put out help you reflect and inspire you to make changes in your own life. And if you do enjoy the podcast, I have a favor to ask of you over the summer. My goal is to empower and inspire as many people as I can with positive, uplifting, and hopefully life-changing content. And I would love to get these conversations out to more and more people, but to do that, I really need your help. My ask of you is that this summer, would you be willing to share an episode of this podcast with five different people? I think this can help in so many different ways. Of course, it's gonna help the person receiving it, especially if you've chosen an episode that's relevant to that particular person. For you, this serves as an act of kindness from you to one of your friends or family members. And for me, it helps me to get the word out, increase the reach of the podcast, 
which in turn helps me convince and persuade hard to get guests to come on the show. No pressure, of course, if you don't feel comfortable doing that, that's completely fine. But if you do have a moment, I would really, really appreciate it. Please also do consider supporting the sponsors who are essential to the weekly production of this show. All discount codes from every sponsor are available on my website, drchastity.com forward slash sponsors. And if you are new to my content, you may be interested to know that I've written five books now covering all kinds of different topics, happiness, physical health, mental health, food, movement, stress, sleep, behavior change, weight loss. If you're interested in any of those topics, please do take a moment to check out my books. They are available all over the world as paperbacks, ebooks, and as audiobooks, which I am narrating. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful summer. Please do press follow or subscribe or whichever platform you listen to these episodes on. That way, you'll be notified as soon as I'm back with my latest conversation. And always remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle change is always worth it. Because when you feel better, you live more.